Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor and counterculture. My name is Tim Lawrence and I'm joined as always by my good friend and party collaborator, Jeremy Gilbert, Jem Gilbert. Hi Jem, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. So this week we uh, are moving on from the three-part mini-series within a series that looked at uh, African music between 1965 uh, and 1975, and we're moving to another three-part mini-series within a series that will be focusing on the Caribbean. Uh, this is all happening within the actual series itself, which is on Afro psychedelia. And uh, for this episode, we're we're going to be uh, focusing on Jamaica, uh, and in particular the years that ran from the independence uh, of Jamaica um, from the UK, uh, which was formalised in 1962 through, through to 1970. So, Jem, why don't you introduce us and give us a bit of background to this week's show? Okay, so I'm going to talk for a few minutes about the history of Jamaica, or at least Jamaica as a British colony. I mean, obviously, the history of human habitation in Jamaica goes back much further than that. But from the 17th century, Jamaica becomes one of the first uh, colonies of the British Empire and really one of the most profitable, one of the most important, mm. uh, actually, um, until at least until the conquest of India. When the slave trade is abolished in the early 19th century, Jamaica has a, it's still sort of connected to the British Empire, but the slave trade is abolished. Actually, in the first half to the mid 19th century, black people do have sort of civil rights and a sort of democratic political culture develops, but it's still clearly dominated by the economic power of the planters. And then in the late 19th century, um, Jamaica comes what's called a, a crowned colony, a crown colony, which means it's subject to more sort of direct government from uh, from Britain. And actually, the kind of power of the legislature declines uh, in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, that, but you do see the development of a sort of black middle class uh, over this whole period into the early 20th century. Then over the course of most of the 20th century, it's still effectively a ground colony. Uh, from the early 20th century onwards, there's a growing radical mo movement. Marcus Garvey, you know, the great iconic uh, black political leader um, of the early 20th century, becomes active organising black people politically and also organising a kind of black workers movement uh, from the, I think from the 1910s really into the 30s. But like a lot of uh, black activists from different parts of the world, he spends some time in the States and he actually, he was put in prison by the American. He was put in prison in Atlanta in the 30s and he eventually died in the 40s. Also in the 30s, you start to see the emergence of Rastafari, Rast Rastafarianism, which is this very complicated, very interesting sort of religious and political movement. You know, it's something that, sort of scholars and historians of Rastafarianism really sort of debate it really is to what extent it should be seen as a religious movement and what to extent it should be seen as a political movement and whether you can even uh, dissociate them. 
there was a really good Radio 4, BBC Radio 4 documentary about the history of Rastafarianism that was sort of written and presented by Akala a few years ago. But he was very, very keen to push the idea that it's basically a political movement, which, you know, is understandable, but it sort of plays down, you know, I think it played down kind of too far in some ways, like some of the sort of millenarian and religious features. Hmm. Millenarian beliefs are basically the belief that sort of the end of the world or some kind of end of history or some kind of final resolution of history is coming soon. Some sort of apocalyptic event that we'll see that the righteous redeemed and uh, the the evil punished. And the term goes back to the fact that I think, you know, close to the first millennium AD, lots of people in Europe thought the end of the world was coming and, you know, Jesus was going to return and all this stuff. And so and one of the features of Rastafarian ideology in the 20th century is the belief that Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, which, as we mentioned before, was one of the few really sort of comp- genuinely autonomous, independent of black African states. I mean, the only really substantial one that wasn't, was never really colonized and so and the, so the belief was that Haile Selassie was in was indeed the second coming of Jesus and there was this mixture of a sort of millenarian Christianity so Afrocentrism uh, combined with one of the kind of move political movements Marcus Garvey was connected with was the back to Africa movement yeah which is the idea that basically black people should probably give up on trying to become kind of equal citizens of countries like britain and america they should just go back to africa which is an idea that had been around since the mid 19th century you know the african country of liberia was founded by an american charity which thought the the thing to do with with slaves was just was indeed to send them back to africa give them a country that's why liberian people and politicians still have have these american names so all these things get combined in Rastafarianism in this in this movement, but also a general sort of anti-colonialism. I mean, one of the features of Jamaican society since the early 19th century had been the fact that there had been these very kind of independent, I mean, sort of communities of escaped slaves living in the hills and the mountains in central, you know, in the central parts of the island, which are heavily forested. You know, it's a, Jamaica's a tropical island so the urban areas are all around the coast and then the in inside in the inner island um if you like is much wilder and there had been sort of communities of people living there these sort of you know sort of outside of any real political or legal structures that, that you know had often been in conflict with the state and with the planter aristocracy and etc et in jamaica and so these so to rastafarianism became very popular in those communities but also popular in sort of poor urban communities between the 30s and the 60s and rastafarianism also this is something people often don't fully realize i think it borrowed large elements i think from uh, members of the east indian community so there was quite a big east indian immigrant community from east india People who'd come, uh, who'd come over from the mid nineteenth century to the early twentieth century, they'd come from India to Jamaica as indentured servants, uh, and they had brought with them, in many cases, the kind of Indian uh, religious beliefs. Um, uh, we often, today we would often call these kind of beliefs and traditions Hindu, but I'm always wary of that because mm-hmm. Hindu. I mean, I'm enough of a scholar of re- the history of religion to know that Hindu is a term which is really invented by Indian nationalists mm-hmm. at the end of the 19th century. Yeah. Though, um, 
but they have brought with them so various things we associate with Rastafarianism today. So like the wearing of dreadlocks that comes from uh, the Shivaite, as the followers of the, the deity Shiva a tradition within kind of Indian mystical asceticism, you know, the sadhus, the Indian holy men who uh, follow or followers of Shiva um, traditionally wear dreadlocks. The smoking of ganja, I mean, ganja is an Indian word. So the smoking of, of cannabis and the use the use of, of weed as a kind of religious tool, a tool, a kind of meditative tool that came from there. And even vegetarianism, which is a big part of, uh, people often don't know this in this country, but vegetarianism and even veganism is a big part of many, not all, but many strands, kind of your stricter rasters. Um, are often vegetarian or even vegan. And this all came from kind of Hindu right. traditions. So it's really, really fascinating sort of syncretic uh, culture. And in the, in the, for most of the 20th century, it's really sort of an oppositional. It is a counterculture. I mean, I mean, a big part, of course, of the imagery and the kind of language and the, and the mythology of Rastafarianism is, is also borrowed from the Old Testament. And it's based on the idea that... I mean, in some in some versions of Rastafarianism, the idea is that the Rastas are literally one of the lost the lost tribe of of Israel. So they're literally one of the tribes of Israel. In other versions of Rastafarianism, the story of the the exile and diaspora of the of the uh, Jewish people is just a, is a sort of metaphor for the experience of slavery and the experience of being de- de- you know sent away from your homeland and longing to return to your homeland. And so Zion, you know, the term, the biblical term for the lost land of Israel, Zion is features in um, Rastafarian language and mythology as a, a promised land to which it's hoped he will return. Although it really varies within different strands of Rastafarianism, whether you think this literally means you're all, everybody's going to go back to Ethiopia and found a kind of and and, and have a sort of utopian state there or whether it's more a kind of promised future in which you know social inequality will be abolished and of course many people will be familiar with the term babylon babylon refers to the you know the story of the babylonian captivity of the of the children of israel um, you know it's an important part of the bible story important part of the historic you know sort of historical or sort of quite quasi historical sort of national mythology of of, Jew, of the Jewish people and, and the state of Israel. And and Babylon in the Bible story, what ha- I mean what happens is that you know the, the, the you know the imperial power of Babylon basically you know captures and, and destroys sort of captures Israel and and um you know enslaves the people, uh, which is what you did in those days if you won a war against someone. And in the Rastafarian uh, discourse uh, Babylon comes to be a general term for sort of colonial imperial capitalism and in the age and especially the state agencies which are allied to it. And so for most of the 20th century, we'll say from the 30s to the 60s, mm-hmm. within Jamaica, Rastafarians would have mostly seen like the Jamaican state itself and, and the Jamaican ruling class and the kind of black middle class all as simply elements of Babylon. But what happens by the 60s, especially following Jamaican independence in 1962, 
is that Rastafarianism starts to attract support from members of the middle class, from sort of intellectuals, and it becomes increasingly mainstream. It never becomes like, you know, it's never the case that most Jamaican people by any means are Rastas, and Rastas aren't seen as this sort of um, slightly strange people outside the mainstream of Jamaican mm. culture. Yeah. But by 1966, we have this event where Haile Selassie himself, at the invitation of kind of organised uh, Rastas, come pays a visit, a sort of a sort of state visit to Jamaica, and is greeted by thousands of Rastas on the streets. And this marks this real sort of um, a sort of new high point for Rastafarian respectability and visibility in, in Jamaica. And of course, over the course of the 60s and into the 70s. The Jamaican kind of political left is becoming increasingly organised, increasingly uh, popular, to the point where the socialist uh, leader Michael Manley, a kind of white Jamaican from an elite background, but a committed anti-colonialist and socialist, is elected prime minister in 1972. And Manley sees the Rastas as his allies. He sees them almost as a sort of cultural vanguard of Jamaican anti-colonialism and anti-capitalism. And by this point, you know, Rastafarianism takes on a kind of status whereby, you know, to be a Rasta in Jamaica is to be, is to demonstrate your absolute commitment to a kind of full-blooded, you know, not just political, but spiritual rejection of capitalist values and colonialism. And that's sort of where we're at, you get to by the early 70s. But and that all that is the context within which the music we're going to be talking about today sort of develops from the early 60s onwards. Without music, life would be a mistake. I mean, what, so one thing, I mean, to what extent is like Rastafarianism and what we might call an organised religion? And also, how, I mean, the other thing is to, I'm interested in to ask you about is the ways in which Christianity was also kind of you know a stat you know is was was the more, was from what I understand the more obviously recognised religion within Jamaica. Well, I think how far how organised is Rastafarianism? Is it well? It just be, it, it starts off completely disorganised and it becomes increasingly organised by by the end of the sixties. There are various kind of churches and organisations. And my understanding of this is that there's always really a sort of continuum which would range from very small groups who who would be practicing sort of really kind of intense forms of mysticism, maybe even called sort of quasi-shamanic sort of practices at one end, through to people who would consider themselves Rastas but would be members, for example, of the Ethiopian Coptic Church or sort of um, offshoots from it. And which is a proper, which is a well-established, you know, very well-established, you know, Christian denomination, you know, a denomination of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Hmm. And I think there's various continuums. And then then also along those that continuum, there would be various um, churches and religious organizations, which we would probably recognize as really forms of charismatic Christianity. Um, so they would basically be Christian, but they would have some elements of Rastafarianism. So they would like i've known a few people like in northeast london a few people of uh, afro-caribbean descent who were members of what seemed to i didn't really i never quizzed i've never really quizzed them about it but fairly straight sort of churches that wouldn't look that different to us from like a baptist church but they're from jamaica and they're really strictly vegetarian for example 
And I, so I think there's never just one answer to that question. I think there, there, there are really highly organized um, forms of Rastafarianism and then there are much less organized forms. And there are forms which are closer to things like Haitian voodoo, voodoo like really not really, uh, not very Christian at all, sort of mystical religions. And then there are uh, strands which are much closer to just effectively being a kind of mi- micro denomination of Christianity and even of even of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, and uh, I think this is this kind of offers us also a, a, a way into reflecting back on the the current series um, on that we're exploring uh, and discussing on Afro psychedelia. Because it's it's arguably through this this kind of you know religious element and in particular the kind of role of of smoking dope within Rastafarianism and its kind of mystical the mystical and spiritual status that it has within that that can help us understand what we we could kind of argue are the spiritual or even the psychedelic uh, elements of of this music. Um, and um, certainly within a kind of you know a, 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 the social the social context of, of of Jamaican society, we we had discussed on the, during the the previous series um, the way in which um, we thought that gospel could you know perhaps somewhat contentiously be considered within this kind of this history of, of psychedelia because of its kind of generation through music in particular. Of a, a, a sort of spiritual experience in which kind of you know in which the participant kind of you know experiences a kind of an ele- an, ele- an elevated sense of sort of being through music um, and a, a connection to a kind of a, you know a cosmic um, force or sensibility um, and I suppose one of the things that um, that interests me and I know you as well is the is the role of sound system culture um, within Jamaican society. Um, I think it's probably worth noting that I mean I, I in particular have made quite uh, written quite a bit about the way that you know New York City was you know pioneered or seemed to pioneer sound system de- developments during the 1970s 70s with you know David Mancuso's loft. And then the sound system developed by Richard Long and Larry Levan at the Paradise Garage, you know, um, iconic um, examples of progressive um, audio culture and the way that this was organized to kind of generate kind of, you know, you know, ecstatic dancing in New York City during during that decade. But it's obviously worth noting that Jamaican sound system culture predated that significantly um, and was far more advanced than anything that was was going on in, in New York City right up to you know the, the point when David Mancuso opened the loft in 1970 at which point a kind of an, a, a new strain of sound system culture started to kind of emerge that was distinctive from the sound system culture developed in Jamaica um, we we were th- Whilst we were thinking about uh, doing a bit of planning for this episode, we did end up deciding that um, it would be wrong to try and squeeze a f- proper analysis of, of Jamaican sound system culture into this episode, and that it would be tricky to do it in this series. So we 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 did kind of end up concluding that we we're going to actually uh, at some point in the not too distant future dedicate um, at the very least an entire mini series to sound system culture and in that mini series 
we're going to um, obviously think through uh, Jamaican sound systems. Um, so that's really just to explain to listeners that we are kind of, you know, this is this is sound systems and Jamaican sound system culture is on our mind during this episode, but we're not going to try and uh, delve into it in any depth right now because there's uh, an awful lot of music we want to try and get to first. But it is interesting to briefly reflect, I think, on why sound system culture um, became so central to Jamaican music culture rather than, you know, any other kind of music culture around the world because Jamaica at this point was the most advanced. And I th- I don't know, this I'm guessing somewhat here, but it seems to me that the role of Rastafarianism and in particular of marijuana within Rastafarian culture and Jamaican society might offer, you know, one of the most compelling reasons why sound systems did become so central to Jamaican music. And we are going to go on to look at the reasons why, uh, you know, poverty within within Jamaica um, encouraged the rise of sound systems, but then, you know, poverty was kind of global to some extent, uh, certainly within the, within the global south. So that, you know, that in itself doesn't explain why sound systems um, were so became so popular in Jamaica. And it does seem to me that, you know, marijuana helps us understand the, you know, the, the reason why sound systems indeed were so, were so potent here. And, and this is partly because we could sort of, argue that you know marijuana and sound in general kind of operate in quite similar ways um i mean one of the one of the one of the things we can say about you know smoking dope is it helps break down boundaries uh it sensitizes touch uh and listening uh, which become accentuated uh and it leads listeners to i guess become less concerned with the self or the distinction between the the self and the rest of the world. Um, so, you know, it's a break, a general breaking down of boundaries happens when, when we smoke dope. And of course, sound operates in a, in a very similar way, you know, whereas, you know, when we, when we see things or visual, or we kind of engage with ris- visual culture, um, what's happening with that is that, you know, our eyes and the information they process to our brain separates, you know, us and our bodies from the rest of the world they tell us what's in front of us and around us and establish that distinction and that's one of the ways that you know we can navigate the world and even survive in the world and whereas sound operates in a very different way it obviously you know we hear through our ears but we also uh, experience sound in our bodies and like dope it's sort of it's about breaking down boundaries it's connective it connects us to the world Uh, sound you know we experience sound throughout you know our, our beings, our material existence. Um, so you know they they work in the same ways, and as you know, as we know, it's can it can be really great to listen to music uh, while you know smoking some dope. They kind of complement each other. So I think this is you know um, one possible or even likely reason why sound systems um you know had became such a kind of force in jamaican culture and and it's through these sound systems that so much of the music that we are going to discuss within this episode sort of came to the fore and as a just to repeat the repeat the point it helps us understand the, the a kind of psychedelic um the psychedelic element um the uh, the infuses a great deal of kind of Jamaican um, music culture as well. So I think we were going to um, open um, with um, this this key figure, Cox and Dodd, 
um, who who uh, was the head of this uh, phenomenal label, Studio One, uh, probably or if not certainly the most influential label uh, in in Jamaican music history. That kind of you know oh, that kind of that saw the rise of ska music. Well, I'm Clement Dodd, better known as Sir Cox and Downbeat, master of the Royal Society of Jazz and king of sound systems. One of the reasons why Cox and Dodd became so kind of such a key figure is was his role uh, within within Jamaican sound system cult, within Jamaican sound system culture. It was prohibitively expensive for working class Jamaicans in particular to buy lots of records. Um, so a lot of record store owners responded by setting up their own sound systems, which were effectively kind of mobile discotheques and putting on parties. Um, because this was a way for people to kind of come and listen to music rather than have to buy music. They could you know, listen to lots of music without having to buy lots of music uh, and have a good time. And these sound systems ended up competing with each other. This is kind of, again, well in advance of, you know, hip-hop sounds, uh, pre-hip-hop sound system culture in the Bronx kind of emerging in, in, a, in a similar kind of way. Um, so the sound systems competed with each other to attract cat crowds. Uh, they would battle over uh, who could develop the loudest speakers and play the best records. And a lot of these early sound systems were playing US rhythm and blues music, R&B. R&B kind of became particularly popular in Jamaican society, uh, in part because during and after the Second World War, US military forces were stationed on the island. And there was also just a constant influx of music from the United States in particular. And Cox and Dodd ended up playing a kind of key role here, initially um, because he was working as a migrant farm worker uh, in Florida, uh, in the early 1950s, he had been born. He was born in 1932, so he was kind of went over, I guess, as in his very late teens or as as kind of in his early 20s. Um, and um, over in the states, he started to listen to southern R and B. Uh, and when he returned to Jamaica, he founded uh, what he called the Downbeat Sound System uh, in 1954. And he started to make trips back to the United States to bring back the latest R and B in order to play it on his on, the, on his sound system. Um, and his role in record production uh, kind of uh, develops in conjunction, effectively, with the rise of rock and roll in the United States during the 1950s. So this is kind of more or less a year after he returned to, to Jamaica. And it was the rise of rock and roll that, that kind of led to the contraction of the US R&B uh, market and the lack of R&B music that was coming out of the United States around the mid-1950s led Jamaican sound system organizers to search for other sources of music. And Dodd, who already had his sound system, uh, decided to enter the studio to develop his own version of, of rhythm and blues music. Um, but instead of doing the straight-up take uh, of, of American R&B, Dodd and other producers started to draw uh, on native idioms such as mento, which is this, this kind of historic folk sound of Jamaica, and also started to emphasize the offbeat, which is something that we can also hear in, in a lot of mento music. 
So um, I thought it'd be good if we just hear a, a quick example of what Mento sounds like. Um, so this is Lord Power and the Calypso Quintet, Penny Reel. <laughs> So when Dodd realised the, the commercial potential of, 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 of his music, he opened Studio One as the first black-owned label in Jamaica, and this, this happened in 1963. And he released a series of releases that year, uh, which marked the emergence of what we now think of as ska music. Um, so an early example of that released by Dodd uh, is this record, Andy and Joey, I want to know, uh, released in So Scar combined Mento and Calypso uh, with uh, US rhythm and blues and jazz. Uh, and like Berry, Gordy at Motown, uh, Cox and Dodd, realised that it would be in his interest to, to establish an, a roster of artists who would be recording, uh, you know, largely, if not exclusively, for him. Uh, and these artists included the Whalers, who we'll, we'll be coming back to later in the show, uh, the Ethiopians, the Mai Tals, and, and also Delroy Wilson. Um, and a lot of these artists began their careers by recording this kind of joyous, up-tempo, celebratory, energetic ska music at Studio One. Um, so a, a, a really good example of this, uh, released in 1965, is Delroy Wilson's I Want Justice. So this sound uh, kind of effectively coincides with Jamaican independence from Britain, as you as you were saying in the intro gem. This kind of happened in 1962. Um, it was the point um, where you know Jamaica sort of was was started, you know, to celebrate its autonomy. Uh, it was the beginning of a period of strong economic growth. Um, I think the kind of the growth was, you know, came in at something like six six percent a year or something for the te first ten years of independence. So initially, at least, all see. I mean, I'm not sure if this was the case for the the, the first ten years of independence, but initially, at least, all seemed well. And I think it's kind of you know the obvious point to make, uh, which has obviously been made by by many other critics, is that there's something about Scar. You know, it's up tempo, celebratory, fun you know, party kind of energy 
that that turned it into the kind of sound of you know Jamaican independence. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I mean, I think it's. I mean, that energy. I mean, you're right about that energy. Although, obviously, it would also. I guess it is always celebratory, isn't it? I guess we'll eventually we'll talk about how Scar gets kind of reappropriated in the like in the eighties in Britain mm. as this as sort of a protest music, but it's quite self consciously. It is quite self consciously actually, sort of jolly sounding protest music. You know, as compared to the very very heavy sound of of what uh, reggae will become but are we going to talk about now we're we going to talk about the bigger the first uh the first uk reggae chart hit yeah uh well even a even even a even a scar hit actually uh which was uh millie's my boy lollipop which was uh released by chris blackwell on his uh, label called Ireland in 1964. Um, but there's quite a bit of a story that uh, might end up leading us to this particular recording. But I think it's, uh, you know, given given our interests in kind of, you know, bringing a kind of, you know, something of a political analysis to, um, or a countercultural analysis, if you want to, to the music we're exploring, it's worth kind of spending a, a little bit of time kind of thinking through the backdrop to the, the recording of this record, which is, I think, is particularly interesting. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that it's, you know, that I wanted to mention just kind of briefly uh, before we get into kind of talking about um Chris Blackwell um and the back the the backstory that led to him kind of opening Ireland Records is to reflect just a little bit further on the the history of slavery and its kind of and its role within Jamaica and and how this can kind of you know maybe frame our understanding of, of Ireland Records it was quite quite I don't know if I actually don't know if you saw this piece and that was kind of uh, or this story that came out. I think it was this week, maybe it was last. I'm pretty sure it was earlier this week. That um, this figure called Eric Williams, who did become the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, wrote this thesis when he was uh, studying at Oxford University uh, uh, in 1938, which was called Capitalism and Slavery. And it was this book that's being kind of, you know, almost, um, you know, um, subjugated in U- in the UK. It didn't get published for almost 30 years. Um, and now a new edition is about to be published by Penguin Modern Classics, and it's coming out in February. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's a really interesting book, and it's really interesting to understand why it's got had so, had so little profile uh, in the UK. Uh, Eric Williams's thesis was that slavery was abolished uh, in much of the British Empire, you know, around 1833, not because Britain suddenly discovered a conscience, uh, which is the popular account of why slavery was abolished, um, but actually because it was in Britain's economic interest. So it introduced slavery for economic interests, economic reasons, and then it got rid of slavery, not because it thought slavery was bad, but because it thought it was no, it was actually inhibiting its ability to to make profit. Um, I mean, this kind of relates to, you know, has a is key to to the Caribbean and Jamaica because Britain was kind of organ- running and had colonised the sugar and cotton industry uh, in Caribbean colonies, uh, including in Jamaica, and was enjoying a monopoly on the supply of sugar to, to Britain. And at the time, British capitalism 
um, to a certain extent, was depending on sugar and cotton plantations uh, in order to kind of you know you know support its kind of rapidly um, growing economy. In order to do this, Britain brought hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans to Jamaica, and the wealth that was generated by sugar refineries and cotton mills. Um, during the 17th and 18th centuries, ended up largely uh, powering the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. Um, so, you know, it was colonialism and the profits from colonialism that, and, and indeed slavery that kind of helps, you know, boost the Industrial Revolution of which Britain is so proud and, you know, often describing itself as the first industrial nation or the workshop of the world or all of these things I kind of remember studying at history at Manchester when I was doing politics and modern history many years ago, um, or even my kind of English A-level, his- English history A-level now I come to think of it. Anyway, it was, um, you know, it was it was kind of as the Industrial Revolution literally gathered steam, British capitalists began to find this Caribbean monopoly that they enjoyed on sugar to actually be a nuisance. And, and Eric Williams kind of notes... The, the sugar monopoly had artificially pushed up the price of sugar in the UK. And at one point, this was advantageous. But as the 19th century unfolded, and industrialists began to see that this monopoly was actually a barrier to free trade, low factory wages and global domination. And so this was the kind of point at which it kind of moved to destroy labor because it was inhibiting the kind of expansion of kind of global capitalism effectively. And kind of fascinatingly, the radical publisher Warburg, um, who Williams tried to get to publish his book, refused to publish it on the basis that uh, any suggestion that the slave trade was abolished for economic reasons rather that rather than humanitarian reasons ran, and I quote, contrary to the British tradition. So I thought this was all kind of pretty interesting in terms of kind of, you know, understanding slavery and kind of also how, you know, slavery has as understood today Catherine Hall um, who's Stuart Hall's surviving wife um, and I was actually thought we could even maybe was wondering if we were going to talk about Stuart Hall in the intro but I guess we'll get back to Stuart in a in a later program but Stuart Hall uh, was born in Jamaica and uh, then went to study at Oxford in the UK and then became this founding figure of of British cultural studies and a hugely kind of influential British intellectual and written, you know, extensively about Jamaican politics amongst other things. But Catherine Hall, um, note his surviving wife, because Stuart passed. When, when did Stuart pass away? It's about five years ago. Right. Yeah. Maybe six or seven. Anyway, she, she's noted in a, you know, in a, I think it was in a, in a recent interview that sums up the point quite well. That's, you know, slavery has, she says, slavery has been forgotten in conventional British history. What's been remembered is abolition rather than the slave trade. Um, so again, this kind of re-emphasizes this point that um, effectively Eric Williams is making is that, you know, there's this kind of huge emphasis has been made on the way in which kind of, you know, for supposedly humanitarian reasons, Britain kind of, you know, ended the slave trade. But actually, that's a, you know, rather partial account of the history. So why, why, why am I, or why are we kind of, why we sort of think that this is all relevant to today's show? Well, most of Jamaica's population of, I think it's around 2.8 million today, are of African or part African descent, uh, many trace their origins back to Ghana and Nigeria. 
And also the figure of Chris Blackwell, uh, who went on to open Island Records is, and is, you know, routinely credited with turning Bob Marley into a global figure, will of course be returning more to Bob Marley. Uh, and also Chris Blackwell is, is uh, credited with doing more than anyone else to sell reggae to the world. Chris Blackwell as his figure sort of looms large or, you know, yeah, rooms large over the history of, of Jamaican music. So I'm, I actually met Chris um, when I was researching my, the last book, Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor, because I talk about Ireland Records quite a lot in that book. In particular, I talk about Grace Jones, who was a recording artist for Ireland, uh, and I, w- I interviewed him for the book. Uh, and the focus of, of that interview was really what Chris was getting up to uh, in in New York City uh, during the late 1970s and early 1980s, and it was I wasn't really getting into kind of deep conversations with him about his role in the rise of ska music or his or his, or his collaboration with with Bob Marley. And I really liked Chris, and he was very generous with his time, and he, I got the sense of being around him that he was a really you know a much loved person. So I feel sort of. You know, I feel slightly hesitant to kind of raise this as an issue and um, sort of feel somewhat unsure about um, how to think through this issue. But um, Chris's um, heritage and his parents uh, in particular, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and maybe great-great-grandparents, I'm not quite sure of the family lineage here and who was born when, but his parents were deeply embedded, uh, his family was deeply embedded, I should say, in colonialism. And as far as I can tell, um, it seems likely that his mother's family uh, would have also been slave owners. Um, His dad was Joseph Blackwell, um, uh, who was the heir to the Cross and Blackwell Company, which was a Cross Cross and Blackwell was a colonial produce business that specialised in pickles and sauces and condiments uh, and that kind of thing that dates back to 1706, but was acquired by Chris's paternal ancestors in 1830, so four years before the abolition of slavery. So I don't know if 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 Chris's family had any on his paternal side had any had any direct involvement in in the slave trade or but he his but they were certainly were trading and purchasing sugar from slave plantations uh, in Jamaica. Uh, a little more starkly, uh, Chris's mum Blanche Lindo Blackwell came from a family that settled in Jamaica in 1743 and made its fortune as merchants. Um, sorry, yeah, as merchants and also as as, uh, as financiers and, and planters. And uh, she grew up on the family's sugar plantation. Um, and um, at some point a little later down the line, her family also bought Jamaica's leading rum manufacturer, but um, it seems kind of it seems in it seems like absolutely certain that um, Blanche Lindo's family, if it ran a sugar plantation, would have been uh, employing slaves to work the, that land. It was a it was a it was a labor intensive industry, which was why slaves were so important to the the, the growth of Jamaican co- colonialism and the rise of of the sugar industry in in Jamaica. So, you know, this is the background. I don't know what we kind of do with it. I mean, clearly Chris isn't responsible for being born into the family he's born into. And I think it's kind of, you know, 
something to be welcomed of course that he ended up in he did so much to embrace um, jamaican music um, in the way that he did and well we're gonna of course i'm gonna go on to sort of uh, outline you know what what the at least his early contribution ended up being but i thought it was just kind of at the outset worth sort of raising this kind of point that um you know the history is a certain is to a certain extent a, is a slightly murky one and um you know, we had in the UK uh, back in June 19, in 2020 the toppling of the slave owner Edward Colston by through this Black Lives Matter demonstration. Uh, up until that point, Edward Colston had been sort of celebrated uh, for his philanthropy, and this was kind of one of the reasons why the or the primary reason why his statue went up in in the first place. But you know, he was a he was a he was a slave owner and a, and a slave trader, and the philanthropy. He he uh, engaged in was underpinned by his role in the slave trade, which was kind of why that statue was toppled by campaigners who were arguing that it was a disgrace that had been made in the first place and, and should be uh, removed. So it's not an exact parallel, of course. To com- I mean, it's maybe you know, there's in fact you, maybe there's not really a parallel at all, but there is a there's some sort of connection um, because certainly uh, even if Chris Blackwell's mother's family didn't trade in slaves uh, it seems it seems as far as i can work out likely that they employed them and that the wealth that his family through colonialism and through the sugar plantations in jamaica um it seems you know it's, it's inevitable that this money uh, led to chris blackwell to lead a, a rather privileged life um that saw him uh end up being in a position that enabled him to eventually um, open island records and become this kind of key figure in the sale and uh, commercialization and also dissemination of uh, first scar and reggae music so i don't know if you've got anything to say about that before we uh before i get into some of the detail of of, of chris's upbringing and his kind of move to back to you know jamaica and his role within this I mean, to some extent, we're all in this. I mean, we're not. Or, or, you know, we have we, we haven't inherited money from slavers, but we're all in a position to some extent of, of being members of a global. I mean, in global terms, you know, we're all members of privileged groups who've arguably benefited from colonialism. To some extent, I don't really know. I mean, I think it, and I think it's there's always. Um, you know, it's always quite hard to know, like how you how one ought to relate to that situation. I mean, I think um, you know there are definitely people. You know, I mean, a friend of ours. I'm not going to say here. A friend of ours got accused of being a colonizer, and not being a colonizer. Got a free. A friend of ours gave a a paper, an academic paper at a conference a couple of years ago, in which he talked about David Mancuso. And somebody attacked him and David Mancuso, calling David a colonizer for like not having, for not having, you know, because he was a white person apparently appropriating and profiting from black culture. And on the one hand, and absolutely, you know, we're coming at this show from an anti colonialist, sort of anti racist perspective. And in, and in terms of broad political questions, you know, I'd be willing to take that a really long way. Like I would definitely support. Uh, reparations, you know, <laughs> reparations being paid towards sort of former slaves and you know third world, you know, so called third world countries, you know, by countries like Britain and, and the United States. So, 
which is a sort of, you know, generally seen as a fairly radical fringe position in the States. And it's just not something anybody in the Britain talks about at all. And I'm sort of conscious, I am sort of conscious, you know, when I'm DJing, when we're making the show, I'm conscious that, you know, on the one hand, I'm not, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a white person talking a lot and kind of getting some benefit from talking about and exposing black music. The thing is, you know, it's very difficult to avoid that. I mean, as some, I mean, I don't know, we'll probably talk about this when we talk about the 80s, but like I had a phase in my early to mid teens of being very self, very conscious about this, partly because I, I'd lived in Atlanta and had a sort of quite a lot of black and Hispanic friends at school and then found myself living in this place where there were no black people at all in sort of West Lancashire. And I felt very self-conscious about having like been really into reggae and sort of being into hip hop. And and I sort of, you know, felt like it was it was indeed some form of cultural appropriation and I just should try not to engage in it and the result was like for a couple of years I didn't really listen to anything but the Beatles and it just, <laughs> so you know I'm not going back there but I just think it I think you know it's very complicated it's complicated it's hard to know what a figure like Blackwell ought to do in that situation it's hard to know where you draw the line between saying that well you know ultimately it's better if black music gets heard and distributed and especially and even music from former colonies gets heard and distributed around the world even if you know rich white people are also making money from it then it doesn't get heard at all uh, and you know and saying that it's just you know that, that these things all have to be critiqued so i'm not really all i'm saying is really is it needs thinking about i mean it does it is very sort of uh, head scratching and it is really an issue that we we shouldn't ignore it as a historical fact we absolutely shouldn't ignore the fact that island records the great institution which popularized reggae around the world uh, was founded with money which was ultimately inherited from probably from you know the slave trade and certainly from the plantation the, Jama- the highly exploitative jamaican plantation economy we shouldn't ignore that i don't know if there's anything else we can do with it apart from sort of remark upon it yeah i think this is the point i mean some distinctions have to be made here i mean there's a distinction to be made surely between i mean you know to again to sort of return to this kind of key argument that's made by eric williams that you know there are certain figures within within capitalism people who are seeking to maximize profit that is not people who are going about sort of commercial sort of trade if you like uh, in order to earn a living but people who are seeking to maximize profit there has to be a distinction between those who are who are involved in colonialism and the slave trade, and we're seeking to maximise profit from that, and the rest of the people who lived in a country, uh, whether that country be the United Kingdom or whatever colonial country, who were going about their daily lives, you know, quite often working in exploitative conditions Yeah, themselves. well, you're, you're right, but it's a class distinction, to be clear. You're talking about a distinction between the capitalist of class course. and everyone else, because there is no part of the capitalist class in Britain from between the 17th and mid-20th century which was not implicated in slavery and its legacies. Absolutely. There, there is no clean section of the capitalist class at all. Absolutely. And so what we're doing, well, I think one of the things, I mean, one of the things we're doing we're doing now, we're doing more of, and I, I think this is probably a good thing, is trying to be more transparent about yes. what, the history that informs the present. Yeah, you're right. And it's yeah, not yeah. to condemn those who are, you know, 
going who exist in the present and want to go about their lives i mean the idea that we should sort of not listen to black music or not play you know black music when we're djing is is i mean it's just ludicrous really you know and it's also it's faintly and in the examples you you referenced it's not like anyone i particularly know is actually making any money out of this i mean david when david was playing soul Makosa, he was basically letting people into uh his loft parties effectively for free there's the you know most people who we, we uh, you know the two of us the people we know you know are involved with kind of you know playing playing you know a, a range of music you know from around the world and not sort of you know doing it because you know we're making any money out of it um and and if we were it would be kind of a you know it would be sort of enough money to kind of you know sort of try and pay the rent or pay the mortgage or put food on the table or or buy more vinyl basically um i mean i want to kind of reiterate i'm not holding chris responsible for any of this none of us no one is risk i think we're all no, no, all, i, un- I it, understand yeah, what you're it's all it's all about what we it's about how we you know it's about taking responsibility for the actions in our lives and i suppose the thing that i you know that i've I'm wondering about is the way in which this hasn't really been discussed. And it's a sort of, it seems like an elephant in the room kind of, you know, sort of issue that a guy who to the best of, you know, my experience is a, is a great guy who's generous with his time and has fantastic taste in music and has helped spread that music around the world. I'm just sort of wondering why there hasn't been more of an explicit discussion about this and if there should be, and it's, you know, it may be that, um, you know, Chris has got an autobiography coming out this year, so it may well be that he he delves into this in in that book. Um, I'd, it might be ever so slightly odd if he doesn't, but um, I've I've no idea. But I just wanted to kind of, in in the spirit of the toppling of the Edward Colston statue and this kind of moment that we're now living in, at least raise this as a question rather than ignore it, given what we're trying to do in this series. But but no fingers are no fingers are being pointed. It's just some questions, sir maybe being raised well i think yeah it's a good point i mean i think what we're saying i think the point is isn't it that it is it's precisely a symptom of the absolute silence about slavery in british history that you were talking about that that, that even that the fact that even i you know the i the grand irony of even island records being sort of funded with slave money <laughs> you know, is is something that people just don't talk about at all and don't, just don't refer to, don't refer to. And, and that is, and on a certain level, there's no more reason why you should make that point with regard to Island Records than any other element of the British ruling class and their activities, frankly, because they're all, every single institution of British finance capital, you know, landlord capital, industrial capital is has been absolutely implicated in that history on the other hand that if we're not even going to talk about it about the label that became famous um that made itself famous by popularizing bob marley as a sort of global superstar then you're not going to talk about it at all and yeah it's symptom symptomatic of the fact that we're not talking about it at all but also say, I don't know if this is going to make the edit, but it's worth throwing in. You know, my experience of learning that history about the sort of history of slavery. I mean, it's worth saying for sort of, you know, it's worth making the point that you have exactly the same arguments have gone on in terms of American historiography. That, you know, the idea that the Civil War was a kind of moral crusade against slavery was the kind of official history of the Civil War for most of the 20th century. 
And it's been widely sort of critiqued by Marxist historians who've, who've argued that essentially it was a kind of power struggle between the industrial, the northern industrialists and the American southern planters. And the, the northern industrialists wanted slavery abolished for exactly the same reasons uh, that um, British industrialists wanted plantation slavery abolished in, in the islands. But you know, my own experience of learning all that is pretty idiosyncratic because I was, in fact, taught history by Catherine Hall so and some of her <laughs> colleagues. So what I learned at university was only the story, according to which, basically, I mean, the very simplified version was, well, the abolition movement, the British abolition movement was virtually a fiction. Like, it hadn't even hadn't played any role. I like the American, you know, in the American Civil War, I'm not saying Catherine gave this simplistic a story, but that was basically, that was the sort of, you know, what most of us undergraduates internalised, like from what we were being told, was that any notion that there had been any sort of genuine contribution towards the abolition of slavery made by kind of humanitarians, well, you know, well-intentioned humanitarians, either in the United States or in Britain, was just a sort of liberal fiction. And then... It sort of took me, a few, you know, it's only over the, in subsequent years, I, I realised, I sort of learned that, well, there had been any sort of a role for, um, for the anti, for the abolition movement. And I, th- and I do sort of think, I think there's a risk, there's, there is a risk in that uh, sort of, there's a risk of overcorrection in that version of history. Because I think, I also think, I mean, I say this having sort of studied a bit, you know, sort of 18th, 19th centuries or British history. I do think it, I think, you know, the rapidity with which the public became shocked by slavery once they knew it was happening, you know, once you had a kind of mass press that was, that was, that was able to even tell people about things that were happening in the colonies is, is pretty striking. So it's definitely, I mean, I'm not at all disagreeing with that Marxist analysis, which says, you know, slavery was abolished because it stopped being profitable. But it is also, it is at the same time true that there was there was genuine like popular revulsion against slavery. Like as soon once, because because I mean, mo- and and the fact that most of most of early colonialism was able to get going by the early the early colonists and indeed the slave traders really not telling people like back in the metropole what they were up to and and often just lying about what they were up to and once people found out what they were up to they were pretty shocked because I, I always think it's important to stress that just to stress the fact that well racism isn't just is not like just baked into human you know human nature which is a, is a view taken by it's taken by some sort of conservatives and some you know some of the sort of so-called afro pessimists today for example and i think it's important also to contest that it's important also to say well look you know i think it's probably true that if slavery had had remained as profitable as it had been then getting rid of it would have been much more difficult but it's you know there was there was a genuine sort of mass movement to, to abolish it um and uh, I think, and just as you know, figures like John Brown, you know, the American abolitionist martyr, you know, were genuine, you know, sort of white radicals who were genuinely opposed to slavery out of out of class solidarity and and sort of humanitarianism. You're listening to Love Is the Message. Hi, uh, it's Tim here from Love is a Message. Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, Gem and I are loving doing this show, uh, but it's also a lot of work and we're really grateful to everyone who has become a patron as this will help us keep doing the podcast uh, for, you know, 
hopefully much, much longer. Um, we're really getting going with the patron benefits now, and we're doing extra content for patrons almost every other week. Um, so hopefully that's a, an incentive for some of you to uh, become a patron. If you want to do this, uh, you can head to our Patreon uh, page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash love message pod forward slash posts and there's also the link in the podcast app uh obviously we realize that not everyone can afford to become a patron and the thing that we most want is for everyone to listen in uh we we're totally committed to keeping uh the podcast uh the main part of the podcast uh to be aired for free uh but if you can support us that'd be really incredible okay thanks for that back to the show there's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the time, there's love is the message. Okay, so Chris Blackwell was born in Westminster, uh, in London, in 1937. Uh, but he grew up in Jamaica, uh, and then returned to the UK to go to Harrow, which is one of the is a private school and one of the uh, elite private schools in the UK. Uh, but he didn't do well at school at all. He didn't go to university. Was clearly a bit of a dropout, uh, maybe destined already for his future career, uh, taking a somewhat alternative lifestyle. Uh, and in 1957, at the age of 20, he returned to Jamaica and started to pursue various entrepreneurial activities. I think most of them were geared up around the hotel industry, uh, leisure, entertainment, maybe sort of water sports. I'm not too sure of the details. But he did, during this period befriend a Bermudan jazz band leader and decided to record the band and try his uh, try his hand in the record business. Uh, and he started to fund his label in part by purchasing, he says, uh, hot R&B records from the United States and selling them back to Jamaican sound system operators for inflated prices. Um, he's quoted as saying, I would scratch off the titles on the labels so I could get a lot of money for them since no one knew, no one would know who the artist was for two or three months. So he's kind of getting going in the record business. And apparently in 1958, uh, he had some kind of epiphany uh, when he was involved in some kind of accident, I think at sea, and he ended up being rescued by a Rasta fisherman. And this apparently kind of transformed his outlook. I'm not entirely sure how, but um, it was uh, a year later that he founded Island Records. And his debut record uh, was a Jamaican jazz record featuring Lance Haywood at the Half Moon Hotel, Montego Bay, 1959. Uh, Montego Bay being uh, the capital of St. James in Jamaica. And he reduced a couple of other records, uh, which did re did reasonably well. Um, but then, then turned to a sequence of records, uh, most of which mixed R&B and ska, uh, including a track by Owen Gray and the Caribs uh, called Mash It. So why don't we listen to that? Now 
Overall, though, uh, Chris Blackwell was struggling to make any kind of impact in Jamaica and in 1961 released just four records. Um, I mentioned, I think, that I did uh, interviewed Chris for the last book and in that interview uh, he told me, uh, the sound system guys started making records after me, but the records I was making were not selling as well. All the problems Jamaica had was blamed on colonial people. So in view of my complexion, I decided I would start again in England because a lot of my records were already selling in England. I went to see my competitors, including Cox and Dodd and Duke Reed, and said, let me release your records in England. Um, sort of does give me a bit pause, does give me pause for thought to think that, you know, he is raising questions about uh colonialism being blamed for the problems of Jamaica. I mean, I, I can imagine that, you know, there might well have been other problems that contributed to that con- that country's problems as well. But uh, the idea that this is kind of something that, you know, led him to kind of need to kind of return to England uh, in order to really make it seems a, a, a slightly sort of whiny potentially. But anyway, he returned to, he returned to England with this, this arrangement with uh, uh, his competitors uh, including Cox and Dodd and Duke Reed, and started to uh, press up their records at a pressing plant. plant. He had a little mini, and he would uh, then drive these records around uh, on the periphery of London where the Jamaican communities had had started to take root or had taken root. He had a great time doing this. Uh, He also kind of... uh, started to take his records to a club on Carnaby Street called the Roaring Twenties and also started to sell records in Soho in a little store owned by Alex Strickland. And in 1962, he sold 37 records. So it's just like this exponential increase. And in 1963, uh, 94 records, which was kind of, you know, quite a significant number. And that the 1963 output uh, included him releasing a track by the then Robert Marley, uh, called Judge Not. Judge Not. So this is the kind of background to Chris Blackwell recording uh, this track, uh, My Boy Lollipop with Millie. Uh, which went on to quickly become the a huge international hit and probably, or I think actually certainly, the uh, Scar Music's first international hit. Uh, Millie had already appeared on one of the tracks that Chris Blackwell had uh, produced uh, or had, had kind of um, licensed from Cox and Dodd. Uh, and he decided to feature her on My Boy Lollipop because he really liked her voice. And he hired a Jamaican guitarist and arranger, Ernest Ranglin, to record that particular record. And uh, it, it catapulted Chris, as he told me, into the mainstream of the music business. So let's hear Millie's My Boy Lollipop. Thank you. 
when I was doing a bit of prep for this show, I thought I would listen to the original of that record because it was a cover version and the original was recorded by Barbie Gay, uh, recorded in 1956, so eight years earlier. Uh, and it's super interesting. I mean, shockingly interesting in a way um, because it was it was released um, effectively as an, as an R, a rhythm and blues track. Um, uh, you know, rhythm and blues mutating into early rock and roll track. Um, but it sounds remarkably similar to ska music, even though it was re- recorded in the United States. And even though ska didn't yet have an, uh, didn't have its name yet. Um, so it's kind of almost like it's one of these kind of extraordinary musical coincidences, uh, sort of premonitions somehow. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons why Chris even decided to record that track with Millie because it already sounded kind of as though it was a scar track, uh, somewhat ahead of its time in a somewhat confusingly different country. Uh, but anyway, the Millie version, uh, which does sound also very similar to the Barbie Gay version, um, you know, did did this, did kind of had this remarkable uh, success. Uh, the conclusion to the story is either kind of anticlimactic or climactic. I guess it sort of depends on your point of view. But um, Chris then sort of started a tour with Millie in the UK to promote the record. Uh, he was uh, told that he should kind of uh, see some of the bands that were happening up in Birmingham. He'd already got very excited, as he kind of explained to me in this interview I conducted with him, that he was really into the whole counter-cultural rock music that was beginning to come through in the form of the Stones and the Beatles, the Who and the Kinks were the bands that he kind of cited. And up in Birmingham, he was told there was a whole bunch of bands that he should check out. So when Millie was uh, booked to appear on a TV show that was being recorded in Birmingham, he, Chris, after the show, went around a couple of the clubs um, with, with um, uh, a friend who had sort of mentioned these bands to him or these, yeah, these Birmingham bands to him. And he walked into a concert uh, that was, um, he said, sounded like Ray Charles on Helium. Uh, and it was Steve Winwood. Um, so uh, Chris made a deal with Steve Winwood right there and then on the spot and signed him to Island Records. And he went on to become a you know a huge international success, of course. And Island Records, I'm sure at the time, biggest selling artist. And I say kind of, I was saying climactic or anticlimactic because um, this was the point at which Island Music really became a kind of rock label. And Chris Blackwell's primary interest was kind of in rock, so it's, it it seems a bit abrupt on, on in some ways to have been you know going to Jamaica to chat to to do whatever he wanted to do to become this ambassador and champion of Scar, and then at the very moment when he he scores this international hit, uh, moves sideways into the music that's really grabbing him at that particular moment, uh, Steve Winwood and rock music. But you know that's also. You know, musical taste is diverse. Diverse is diverse, and it's I guess you know it's kind of understandable the extent to which rock was kind of you know exciting music, and also you know uh, potentially good business at a particular moment. But um, but that was the that's what you know will will go on to happen with in, primarily with Ireland in the next few years before um, Chris Blackwell and Science Bob Marley. <laughs> 